If you're an executive director, a board chair, or a member of the development staff, side effects of the following words may include trembling and anxiety attacks. 60 days until year end. Statistics tell us that the overwhelming percentage of fundraising dollars come in in the last quarter of the year. October is now behind us, so that leaves us only 60 days. Yikes. Today's podcast may just be the antidote you need for the trembling and anxiety attacks. We'll help you grapple with a 60-day time frame to raise the maximum amount of money, even if it's not year-end. Maybe you have a big gap to fill and 60 days to fill it. Take a nice deep breath, and instead of, as they say in meditation, focusing on the breath, focus instead on the advice of my guest. Welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. Not enough money, too many cooks, and an abundance of passion. Leading nonprofits isn't easy. Joan Gary, the dear Abby of nonprofits, gets it, and she is here to help. Seth Rosen is a development guru, a former client, a colleague. He's a recovering attorney. He raises money for Lambda Legal, an organization my family cares deeply about. He raised millions of dollars both domestically and internationally. In his decades of experience, he has worked for a law school, he's raised money to end malaria, and he's been the development director of the oldest and largest organization fighting HIV and AIDS. He's also the only repeat guest on my podcast. And in fact, our first podcast together ranks as one of my top five episodes. But his most valuable credential, at least for me, is that he is my friend. Hello, my friend, Seth. Joan, it is a pleasure as always. So before... Before we dig into the specifics, for those of you who do not know your um, professional trajectory, can you talk for a minute how an attorney becomes a fundraiser? It kind of feels like a dissonant career path. Sure, absolutely. So I was an attorney, and there were many things I really loved about it, and that was advocating for a cause, writing, talking with people about something I was passionate about. But I really realized that litigation, which was what I was doing, was was not for me. I thought I was going to be Matlock, and it turned out I really wasn't. So I have the unique um, story of saying that I got my first development job by uh, replying to a hard copy classified ad in the New York Times, um, which I don't even think they print that anymore. No, they don't. And it's, it's amazing I'm, how much I'm dating myself here. Uh, well, and, I think Matlock uh, actually was your, <laughs> was your first problem, honey. That's, that's, that's right. We'll wait for the, uh, for, the, for the update of it. Really, there's like half um, the people listening are going, Matlock? What is Matlock? Yes, Matlock was a famous attorney. Um, and so I sent my kinda resume. Like Perry, like, kind of like Perry Mason said. Exactly. People know <laughs> that one. If you know Matlock, you certainly know Perry. Um, so I moved into plan giving, which is a trajectory that many attorneys who are leaving the law take. Um, and I was able to do work in life income gifts. Um, uh, plan gifts are when people leave a gift either f um, for a charitable gift annuity or they're leaving their estate and their estate plans a gift to a to a nonprofit to a charitable organization. And then from there, I was at Planned Parenthood. I was very lucky. And I realized I loved frontline fundraising and kind of the rest is history. What do you love about it? 
I love being able to talk to people about a cause that I'm passionate in and work to raise money for that cause. It's a privilege, and I feel very lucky. And I believe that when you engage someone in fundraising, a donor, it is a gift to them because it can be very life-changing as much as it is to the organization. But you... You could talk to a lot of people about causes and not be a fundraiser. You could have been a program person or, or so, you know, you could have, um, you, you specifically chose fundraising. Do you have a, yeah like a sense of sort of what, uh, clearly the, the transition was attorney planned giving, but now once you're, once you're in, like, unlike many people who contend with fundraising as a necessary evil, you and I are kindred spirits in this regard. You actually really enjoy asking people for money. What's at the, yeah, what, I, what's at the heart? Ha, ha, you know, there's, there are some people out there that couldn't possibly imagine how someone could enjoy it. So I really love seeing the transformative effect that a gift has on an organization, even a gift if it's $25 to as high as you know, multi-millions. It always has an impact. And I really enjoy seeing the impact on the donor because when you make a charitable gift, I think there is a, a gift to yourself. There's a lightness to it. There's a feeling of generosity. There's just a goodwill that goes along with it. And I love seeing that. And also, frankly, I just like asking for money. And I think it helps to be somewhat competitive. Um, <laughs> I, you know, with fundraising, you have a hardline goal that you have to meet. Because if you don't, then there can be real, really difficult consequences for a, for a nonprofit. And I like challenging me, challenging myself to to meet that goal. Okay, so <clears throat> there's also a, a fair amount of pressure involved in fundraising, um, and certainly at, at at this time of year, as we move in towards year end. So, um, our task today. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, Mr. Rosen, is to help our listeners make the most of the last 60 days before year-end. So let's assume that you have a small development staff, maybe a development director, maybe one or two others, maybe. And I'm aware that there's a direct correlation between success in the last 60 days and seeds you have planted in the prior months. So let's start there and say, what do you hope that our hypothetical, relatively small nonprofit has done coming into the last 60 days? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So the number one thing I hope that anyone who is a fundraiser at a small nonprofit has done in the prior uh, 10 months is work to educate their donors on the terrific, fantastic, exciting, engaging work of their organization. It is very difficult to raise money from people who have not heard from you or your executive director or a program person in the previous 10 months. Uh, it's really important to keep them knowledgeable. And it doesn't have to be a lot, and it doesn't have to be um, very often, but there has to be that ongoing connection. That can happen in a variety of channels, email, phone calls, uh, hard copy letters, but that connection really needs to be there. And this is a step that um, people miss when it comes to how to engage their board in fundraising, isn't it? 
Yeah, it, it is because in so many ways, um, a board member is the absolute best ambassador. So, Joan, I think it's it's uh, you that have has coined the the phrase, you know, a credible messenger plus an ask equals a gift, which I love, and I tell people all the time that you came up with that because it's really true. And there are very few messengers that are more credible than a board member. And I. And I believe that, uh, so I had Gail Perry on, who's a fundraising guru on a podcast or, or earlier, I think either but earlier this year. And she actually has an argument that you shouldn't actually ask your board members to ask for money. And we'll come back to that, but that, that they, that they need to be door openers, cultivators, and stewards. And I actually think that if you engage your board members as stewards and cultivators and ask them to reach out and connect with, with, with donors during the year <clears throat> without asking for money, it actually gets easier to ask them, don't you think? Absolutely. I, I really do, because you've built that authentic relationship. The person that the board member is calling is not, they don't think, oh, the phone's ringing. It's, you know, oh, Ms. Y, she's asking for money. Instead, they have a relationship. They've heard, they know what the work is about. And I completely agree that it is always better to give the information, whether it's a board member or someone else before asking. Okay. So we've, so let's assume we've planted at least some seeds. Now what? It's November 1st. You have 60 days till year end. What do you see as some of the elements of the recipe of success? So the first thing I, I really like people to do is to reconnect with the successes that their organization has had in the previous 10 months. So just make a list, take out a piece of paper. It doesn't have to be very formal. And write down, if you can, 10 things that you are proud that your organization has done. And it serves two purposes. One, it reconnects you to the importance of the mission, right, which is so important because if you can speak about um, the successes of your organization passionately, then it really helps with fundraising. And then the other is that when you're going to go on a call with these donors, whether it's in person or on the phone or you're writing an email, you can refer to this list and say, oh, these 10 things were really important. And then tailor your ask to the interest of the donor. So if you have 10 things there, more likely than not, there's going to be one, two, or more things that you know that the donor's really interested in. So that's the first thing um, I like people to do. The second thing is to take a look at the next eight weeks and begin plotting out the key dates that are there remembering that you really don't have 60 days at the end of the year, right? You have Thanksgiving. It's really hard to reach people on that Thursday, Friday, and over that weekend, obviously. There's Christmas. And then as you wind up to the very end, people get a little frantic right before New Year's Eve. So you want to take a look and then plot out what you're doing every week. I think that's really important. It helps me. I am also coming to a year-end cycle, and I just did that. And I'm looking, where are my goals? What am I doing? What emails am I sending? Who am I calling? So those are the those are the things that I recommend people doing first. You're absolutely right. I do believe that people think they have eight weeks and they don't really have uh, eight weeks. Now, when you talk about what you should do, are you talking about you in the singular, or are you talking about you? So I, you know, I have a. a, a, a it's my firm belief that a development director is a quarterback, and that the quarterback, even if there is no development staff, has a team, and the team has the CEO on it, the team has your board on it, so that I think of you as a plural you as it relates to the final eight weeks of the year and the other, you know, and the, and the rest of those weeks as well. Um, 
Where does the board fall into this mix? People are, uh, it's probably the number one question I get asked is how do I find, if it's either how do I find great board members or how do I get my board members to be engaged in fundraising? This is where, you know, really where you have, where the rubber hits the road these last six, these last six to eight weeks. What, where does, can, or should the board fall into this mix, especially the development committee? So, Jonah, I want to say, first of all, you're absolutely right. When I say you, I mean the team. You're not alone, and I hope people – it's very, very rare circumstances when a fundraiser is really alone. It does not happen often at all. So, as you said, you have board, you have your CEO or ED. Remember, you also have key volunteers, and you may also have some clients that can help you as well. So, there is a team, um, and it's important to keep that in mind. So, if you have a development committee and you're lucky enough to have that – what I like to do is at the end of October or beginning of November, schedule a development committee meeting with them and go over what your plan is. I think an informed development committee, like an informed board, always is helpful. And you're going to ask them to be your champions and lay out some specific tasks that they can do. So the first thing at the end of the year would be for them to contact the people that they've been in, in engaging in previously and work with them on making those asks. The second thing, which I think is just as important, is to ask them to make thank you calls. So over the course of the next 60 days, gifts are going to come in and you're going to want to really use that board, that development committee and other members to call and say thank you. And I want to point out, it doesn't just have to be end of year gifts. The board can call and say thank you for gifts that came in through the previous 10 months as well. Everyone likes a board thank you. It's very quick and it's really easy to do and it makes the donor feel really great. And it can happen not just with individuals, but if you have some corporate donors and you have a corporate contact, a board member can call there as well. And also I think a foundation, a program officer can be called in the right circumstance so the board can give kind of a volunteer testimonial about how the foundation support really impacted the, uh, the nonprofit, how it impacted the organization, and how how it funded really terrific work. But look at the development committee as your extra set of hands, as your ambassadors, as people who are going to help you get out the message between November 1 and December 31st. So, um, it's a little bit of a digression, but not really. So look at the development committee as an extra set of hands. I get that. I have actually worked with clients who have balked at the notion of having a development committee because they believe that it lets the rest of the board off the hook and that they say, well, all of my, my entire board is the development committee. And I wonder if you could just, just take a minute to talk about um, sort of how you would respond to that, that the development committee uh, is particularly focused on development, but so too is the rest of the board. And what's the relationship between the development committee and the rest of the board? So I'm going to follow up on an analogy you had before, Joan, which I thought was great. And the way that the director of development is the quarterback for the final 60 days of fundraising, the development committee is the quarterback for the rest of the board. And quite frankly, you as the director of development have better things to do than to nag your board members. Really, it is the job of the development committee, if you have one, to talk to their peers and give the information and really move them along and cheer them along and let them know in a kind way what they're responsible for before the end of the year. So they work with their peers, and I think it's extremely effective. I think um, 
it is very hard for a director of development to be responsible for managing an entire board with fundraising. It works much better if you have a fundraising committee, a development committee, who can then each take a piece of the board and work with them and deliver your message. Oh, I only wish that that's how development committees saw themselves. Far, right? Far too often <laughs> they think of themselves as like supervising the development director and asking for about a gazillion reports so that they can feel good about their own knowledge and understanding of how money's being raised. It's, it's so true, and I'm going to say that it is a year-round process of working with the development committee and educating them. It involves the ED or CEO and the chair of the board and the chair of the development committee, but it is a give and take, and I really do believe no one arrives on the development committee knowing what they're supposed to do, but they learn thanks to their peers, thanks to staff, and they get more comfortable with it. So unfortunately, at the end of their six years or whenever they time off the board, they're perfect, and you've <laughs> educated them so they can walk onto another board, but it, it really is an ongoing process, and I, I want to stress that it, no one's perfect at this, right? It is it is a process, and if it's not working well for you right now in your final 60 days, look to the future, right? You're working with them. It may not be perfect right then, but it will so, get better. Um, following up uh, um, on that Pollyanna-like remark, I, I'm, I'm actually going to go... Uh, <laughs> oh, Joan, Pollyanna. Uh, Pollyanna. I don't know. Anyway. So I, let's take a look at the other side. Let's look at the glass half empty. I know it is not your predisposition, but just stay with me. Sure. So, you've, so let, now let's say you've arrived to a struggling nonprofit, you know, eye on the cash flow, sweating payroll. Um, and there, there haven't been the seeds planted in the previous 10 months that you outlined. Is there hope? Yeah, there definitely is. And in many ways, actually, I want to stress that year-end, whether it's a great position where you've done all this terrific work or it's a bad position, it is about doing as much as you can with as many touches on donors to bring in as much money as possible. So a long time ago when I was at Amnesty, uh, I was the director of major gifts there, and I actually had keychains printed up for my gift officers that said, I think it was more calls equals more visits equals more dollars, right? I'm sure they <laughs> love that. And anyway, that was really about the fact that you got to move through and you have to cycle through and you have to try to bring in as much as possible. So if you are in a position that's really difficult, look at your gifts from the previous year, right? The previous 10 months. And also, if it's possible, if you have the database to do it, look at donors who have given consecutively every year, right? Run that for 10 years if you can, for whatever length of time that makes sense for your organization. And the donors that have given the most um, years consecutively at the highest amounts, start with them, right? They're your most committed donors. They're people who really value your organization. Whether whether there have been cultivation seeds planted or not, they feel uh, engaged, and you're going to triage and go down the list, right? But I also want to just caution one thing. There are a lot of people who, when they step into that situation, they say, oh, I'm going to bring donors X, Y, and Z back. And that's terrific, but that can be a long-term process. And if you need to make payroll and you're barreling toward the end of the year, your job is to bring in as much cash as quickly as possible. So if you have a donor that you think you could eventually bring back for $25,000, right, I'm just using that as a round number, and you have five donors that could only give $5,000 
$5,000 each, go for those five. Because if you don't bring that $25,000 donor back, you got nothing. But if you can bring back three or you can work on three out of those fives, at least you have 15. So it's all about bringing as much money as possible before December 31st. So part of what, so the, the, the key message in what you're saying here, Seth, is focus on the people with the tightest connection to the organization. Absolutely. Without a doubt. That's really what it is in, in your final time. Board members can be really helpful with that as well. Um, they may have people that they have been cultivating and, uh, for years or they've been soliciting for the last few years. Even if they haven't talked to them recently, they're good people for the board member to follow up with again. But the, really look at your data if you have it about, as you said, people who are the most committed and feel the most connection. A lot of people think that the that the, the that the treasure is in the person who is lapsed by a year, that maybe you've arrived to a struggling organization where there's been a transition in a development director or a transition at the ED level, and, and it's quite possible that that person has only been lapsed because they, had, they weren't asked the year before. So are, are you saying that... Are you saying to steer clear of lapsed donors in the last 60 days, or is there some way to distinguish amongst them? No, no. When I say lapsed, first of all, to me, a donor that's only, that's only one year out, well, technically lapsed, they've just forgotten. They weren't asked. They misplaced the appeal, right? I don't worry about that as much. Those are people you should definitely go to. In this context, when I'm saying lapsed, a lot of people come into jobs and they see somebody who's been gone for four or five years mm -hmm. and hasn't given and think, I'm going to bring them back. They were a major donor. It takes more time to do that. But one year two years, they're really within your threshold of people who just need to be reminded to give. And people just forget. People have life events that are hard. Maybe they had a baby. Maybe they had a death in the family. I, I just think that they need to be reminded and they will come yeah, back. Yeah, I, 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 I agree with that. I do think that there's a difference between, there's almost like categories of lapsed donors. Absolutely. Um, so we, um, uh, we are, have, are talking with Seth Rosen, who's a development guru, a former client and a colleague, a recovering attorney. He is also a senior major gifts officer for Lambda Legal, an LGBT legal advocacy organization. Uh, and he has raised tons and tons of money, both domestically and internationally. And um, he is one of the, the, I think, the only person I've invited back on my podcast. <laughs> Which I appreciate. Thank um, you. So I hear the the concerns um, of leaders of small nonprofits daily through my online membership site, the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, and I feel very much in touch with the travails of people with no development staff and a working but not necessarily a fundraising board. This is the time of the year to raise money. So not only is there urgency, but there's also opportunity. But I feel like I feel like people with no development staff and a working board really need some advice on how to capitalize on the last 60 days of the year. And um, I'm hoping that you ha might have some advice for them. Yeah, it's certainly hard. And I um, first of all, 
remember this is hard, right? Make sure that you're not comparing yourself to an organization that has a larger development staff, um, that has a fundraising board. You're in a unique situation, and it's just important to kind of hunker down. And my suggestion is clear your schedule as much as possible and focus on making calls to donors and telling them why they should give to your organization and actually make an ask. And it's super hard because you have a million other things that you have to do as an ED. You know, I can't even imagine the programmatic aspects never stop. So many other things, but you have to say to yourself, I'm going to not do the things I don't have to do in November and December, and I'm going to make myself for a portion of each day, a large portion if you can, and I'm just going to ask for money. And do things that can be reach a lot of people in a with less effort. So one, hopefully you have some kind of social media. You may not, but if you do, make sure that you are posting not just your appeal on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, but you're talking about the accomplishments of your organization and also putting the donate link every time because you'd be surprised how many people will, will remind themselves that way that they have to give, but it has to happen a lot. It can't just be the first week of November and then you stop or the last week of December. You have to do it consistently through, through both months really highlighting your successes. And the other is, as difficult as it is, you're going to write an email and you're going to send it out to your list. And it's just a way to get your voice, your perspective, um, your successes out to as many people as possible. So if you are a solo shop, you're going to look for ways that you can reach as many people as possible with as little time as you can put into it, to be the honest. The other thing, too... Um you know, clearing your schedule is telling your board chair and your board that you're doing that and asking and asking them to join you in. I mean, it sends a really strong message to your board. First of all, it, um, it tells them what your priority is. It, it also models what theirs should be. And, uh, it also lets you off the hook because you can say, this is something that's going to, t- this X over here, this thing's going to take a little bit of a back seat because I have an opportunity this next eight weeks to drive money for programs and I'm not going to miss a single day of it. And I hope you will join me in that effort. Yep. I couldn't agree more. Your board chair, your board leadership, all the directors have to be your partners. And frankly, I think this, Jonah, and you write and speak so well about this, but that's also a part of the board education process throughout the year. They have to be reminded that their job are as fundraisers, most especially in a small shop. So regardless of size, I mean, you referenced e-appeals. So let's, 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 let's stay with that for a second. Regardless of size, nonprofit people leaders everywhere are kind of sweating the details of their year-end e-appeal. They, they sweat they sweat what it should say and the tone and tenor and all of that. And um, so it's November 1st. You've got 60 days till year-end, and your point is very well taken. It's not really 60 days given holidays. It's November 1st. Is it too late to send out? An, like when, uh, What's the right timing for an e-appeal? When should it go out? It's never too late, really, to send it out. So 
if you are a small shop, my suggestion really is to send out at the beginning of November, if, if you can do it, a brief update about the successes of your organization over the last 10 months from January 1, right? It can be a bulleted list, and it can have a very soft ask in it, right? That's the one I like to do that probably the first week of November, if you can. And by soft ask, I mean it has the donate um, link in it, but it's not a really hard saying give money right now. Instead, you're really focusing on success, right? You're telling people what you've done with their money in the past or kind of giving a preview of what you do with their money in the future by referencing your past successes. Then right before Thanksgiving, I like to do a plain thank you email. No ask at all, but just saying thank you. And it can have pictures from events from throughout the year. Um, if you have an organization that has clients and it's appropriate to use pictures of clients, use those as well. But you're really saying thank you to the donor, to their family, wishing them a happy Thanksgiving. Then the week after Thanksgiving, appeal number one goes out, right? So that's the end of November, very beginning of December. Um, around the third week, a few days before Christmas, a reminder, and then set your email system up so that right before the end of the year, probably about 48 hours before, you do a final reminder reminding people to give. There are people who really do look for the tax deduction at the end of the year. They need to do it before midnight on December 31st, and they forget get that they need to do it, but they're in the holiday mood and they see that final reminder. And I really do think it works. Good recipe. Um, I feel like people really sweat the messaging of their e-appeal. How, how imp- I've really been asked a lot of this. It was like, like really sweating it almost. Can, can you sweat the messaging to a fault? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think the most really important thing is that perfect is going to be the enemy of fundraising. You want it well done. You want it to be really good, but not so long that you're so worried about it that you don't hit send. First of all, don't let that happen. It, it can. But the, the real reality of it is if you're speaking from the heart and you're talking about your connection to the organization and why it's important, it will never be wrong. It really is that authentic connection, speaking with a voice that's very much your own, really, in my mind, works good, wonders. Good. Um, so some Somewhere in the midst of your timeline is the infamous Giving Tuesday. And uh, this is another question we get asked a ton, is how to take best and fullest advantage of Giving Tuesday. Is Giving Tuesday everything it's cracked up to be? I'm going to say no. That is my <laughs> opinion. I really don't believe it is. And I, I'm, I don't think I'm in the minority, but I do feel strongly enough that I do talk about it. I think in the first years of Giving Tuesday, we should recognize it's really not that old. I want to say six, seven, eight years. I could be off, but it's not that, it's really not that long. Um, It was very successful because it was novel and not that many organizations did it, especially at the beginning. But now on Giving Tuesday, you will hear from everyone, frankly, who has your email address. And I find it really 
ineffective because if let's say you know I, I work for Lambda Legal and it's uh, an organization that works for uh, on behalf of legal equality for LGBTQ people and everyone living with HIV and AIDS. So there are other organizations that are in the sector and have made, not the exact same mission, but but do work with LGBTQ people and people who are who are HIV positive. And if you hear from all of those organizations on the exact same day and the same eight hours, I find it to be ineffective. Who started Giving Tuesday? Do you know? Um, It was someone with a terrific idea, I don't know their name, who wanted to really change the narrative around commercialism. So it was Black Friday, right, where people go out and buy. And then they said, you know what, we need to, and I really do agree with this, let's focus on people who are in need, people who need our assistance, and that was Giving Tuesday. And I think it's a great idea, but I think that it is um, it is hard when everybody comes out and asks for money. So the thing I, I would say do instead, if you can, is have your board members on that Tuesday call and thank people. It will cut through the noise of only ask. You're not. This is not an ask. The board members will call. It could be staff as well. It could be key volunteers, a client, CEO, and just say, I'm thinking about you. Thank you for your gift. We are so grateful. We just had Thanksgiving. We are thankful for you. So a different way to give on Tuesday. I think so. I think it, um, it's just hard to compete with two dozen solicitations that are coming into your inbox. It, and for some people, that's very overwhelming for a donor. It feels just too, like too much. Yeah, it's just so interesting. And so, so you would actually avoid it all. So you would avoid, if you were running an organization, you'd kind of avoid, You'd, you'd use Giving Tuesday as an appreciation day and just and not I make d- asks and not sort of get into the into the fray with all the other organizations. Right. I, I, I really do feel that way. As long as you have your final 60-day plan, right, you have other mechanisms for giving. You really thought about this, but I think cutting through it and saying thank you is so, is so important. And I think it feels good to people on a day when people are just asking for a lot from them to be sold. You really just want to say thank you for all you've done for us. Interesting. So we talked a few minutes ago. We've been talking a little bit about the role of the board in year-end fuzz- fundraising. I'm always intrigued by your perspective of how a development director works with the board development committee and the sort of the recipe of success. I mean, I, I, I didn't, it really wasn't a joke when I said that board development committees generally don't really understand that, aren't really taught that their role is sort of being a champion for the board's efforts to fundraise and partnering with a development director to hit a year-end number. They don't just see it that way. Um, And so as such, oftentimes the development committee sees the development director as kind of almost a direct report. Um, What's your advice for a development director on how to make the most of their relationship with a development committee? So I, I was also not joking either when I said it's year-round education. Right. And I really I really believe that. And I think it begins um, with the onboarding process. And Joan, you uh, you do and have advised nonprofits on really fantastic, thoughtful onboarding. But it starts then. It's always. Because you're right. The default can be for 
for somebody who joins a board and is not familiar with nonprofit fundraising, and quite frankly, why would they be, right? They're, it's a specialized skill. If you're not doing that in your, in your normal everyday life, you might not know what it is. It's ongoing education about what philanthropy is, what a development shop does, what the role of a board does. I think if you don't do that, it be, can become messy. So I think it's really talking to the development committee um, and and treating them as your partner and making sure that they know that you're partnering together to raise money. They are key volunteers. They are leadership. They deserve respect, but they do not manage the director of development or any member of the development staff. That's the CEO's yeah. job. Um, so the clock is ticking and we're just about out of time. And I often describe my friend Seth as the happiest man I know. That in fact he see he doesn't see the glasses half full. He sees it as like running over. It's kind of overflowing, overflowing right? It's it's actually <laughs> quite a gift, or, or or maybe it's just really good meds. I don't really know. But um, in fact, when when he worked with me at Joan Gary Consulting, um, the Lego Movie had just come out, and his, and his theme song was the Oscar nominated <laughs> classic. Everything is awesome. And so, Seth, would you be kind enough to offer your listeners a dose of Seth? Here we are, right? This is the antidote I talked about in the beginning. What's the, what's the antidote to trembling and anxiety? Give them some word, Give my listeners some words to hang on to as an antidote to the 60 days till year-end blues. Sure. So with the overflowing glass, I would say to remember that you as a fundraiser are a key member of the nonprofit that you work for and that you are changing the lives of people who your nonprofit serves with every dollar that you raise. I think that there can be the tendency of um, fundraisers to feel somewhat removed from sometimes from a nonprofit's mission because they're not doing the programmatic work. Well, I'm here to tell you, you are just as important as anyone in program as anyone who works for the organization, because without the money that you're raising and the relationships you're building, the work would not happen. And part two of that for this year, which I think has been for many people a very difficult negative year, when you're fundraising, you are giving people the ability to do something positive and to make the world a better place. And don't take that for granted. It's extremely powerful. And I think it will work very well for your nonprofit this year. I am... Um, um I think you're totally right. I, I talk about this a lot, is that our world feels more than just a little ugly. And, mm -hmm. and I also talk about how there are lots and lots of people who are in the stands and you, and you as a fundraiser are on the field. And you are inviting people to get out of the stands and onto the field. And some people do that as a volunteer. Some people do that as joining a board. But a lot of people do it by giving you their credit card information or writing a check. And Yes, right? and I love that. I it's think that's a, a great it's analogy. A, it, yeah. We call it a checkbook activist. And, um, mm -hmm. and that's the opportunity you hand people every time you ask them to join you in, um, in a cause that you care deeply about. So... Um, so it's, yes. it's, it's time to go and Seth, it is, um, it's always a pleasure to have you, uh, um, talking to our listeners because somehow or another you talk like a PowerPoint presentation, which I find really remarkable. Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> but you also are um, so upbeat and optimistic and really um, it, the joy that you have about raising money is really contagious. And this is exactly the dose of, uh, of this is exactly the antidote I think our listeners were listening, were looking for today. So thank you. Well, I'm glad. And they should know that I learned from the best, which was Joan <laughs> Gary. So I am happy to so be here. In my, uh, so, um, so that's Seth Rosen, and it's time to go. Um, but I do want to remind folks that in my work, I do what I can to make resources available to board and staff leaders of nonprofits in an effort to help you feel less overwhelmed and alone. I, mean, I think Seth put it really, really well. You're not just doing hard work. You're doing the most important work there is, and there is just a boatload riding on your success. So take advantage of some of the resources that, um, that we provide. My blog is at joangary.com with two R's. There's a, now a, an inventory of 40 or more podcast topics on iTunes. See if there is one that can be of specific help to you right now. In addition to the one you're listening to, of course, um, you can grab a free chapter of my book at nonprofitsaremessy.com. The chapter itself may be of some value, and if you enjoy it, you can pick up a copy. Know that it could be a really good gift for your staff or your board. Um, I also wrote it in such a way that a chapter or a section of it could be terrific pre-reading for a board meeting or retreat. And if you're interested and want to buy more than a few, you can contact our team, quarterback Cindy Pereira at cindy at joangary.com. And lastly, for leaders of small nonprofits, consider joining the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, and you can learn more about that at nonprofitleadershiplab.com. So once again, thank you, as always, for the important work you do, truly. Thank you so much, and we'll talk to you next time. Nonprofits Are Messy is a service of Joan Gary Consulting. Widely known as the Nonprofit Dear Abby, Joan's leadership blog reaches over 40,000 unique visitors monthly from over 150 countries. Subscribe at www.joangary.com.